Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 24, and we're in the middle of, of Paul's trial here, and we're going to be starting around verse 22, so let's open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for us allowing us to come together here and to, uh, again, study your word, to apply it to our lives, and we thank you for the faithfulness of Mark and in his ministry to to study the the word your word diligently and to impress upon our hearts so that we can become ambassadors for the teachings of Jesus Christ and uh, keep in mind always that he said to love our neighbors as ourselves and blessed are the peacemakers for they are called the sons of God. And thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, Mark. Welcome. Amen. Thank you. It's really good to be back with everyone. Uh, Here we are looking at the trials of Paul at the latter part of the book of Acts, originally the second volume of the History of Christian Origins by uh, Luke, uh, now known as Acts of the Apostles. And uh, Paul, of course, uh, had, had... was determined to get up to Jerusalem for Pentecost. He had a big offering from the predominantly foreign uh, assemblies of believers uh, to give to the Judean believers in uh, Judea, in Jerusalem. And uh, he knew that he would be arrested if he went up to Jerusalem, but he had absolutely no fear of this. And... uh, we have pointed out in detail how that all of the uh, Christ followers in Jerusalem were also uh, diligently following the law of Moses, uh, not the corrupted version brought back from Babylon, but the the one given by Moses as uh, set straight by Jesus when he spent three years as a rabbi, you know, trying to correct all of that. Uh, they're all uh, doing that, and Paul is... Uh, asked to go along with four of the believers to conclude their Nazarite vows, and he is, in the course of doing this, some of his uh, Judean enemies from the province of Asia, present-day Turkey, uh, saw him and started screaming and acting like uh, maniacs in the temple courtyard, and uh, stirred up a mob which would have ripped Paul to shreds had not the Roman garrison 
come down and uh, rescued him. Uh, the Roman commanding officer got Paul out of Jerusalem by night because of a plot to assassinate him when he would be taken up for another hearing at the Sanhedrin uh, there off the side of the temple courtyard. And so we uh, are reading in Acts 24, or I've just finished looking at the uh, first hearing before Felix down there, and we've noted several things that are usually overlooked by a lot of teachers. Uh, we, we've noted that uh, Paul is accused of, of trying to violate the temple, of teaching against the law, teaching against the chosen people, teaching against the temple, uh, similar to the charges that have been brought against Stephen many years before. But Paul, in every case, denies this and says, no, he's really on trial for the resurrection or the hope of Israel. And he uses those terms uh, synonymously, the hope of Israel and the resurrection. We pointed out that the Sadducees who initially had accused him up in Jerusalem at the uh, Sanhedrin council meeting had apparently uh, not bothered to come down to Caesarea, the high priest came and brought some of the elders. Apparently, many of these elders, are, were I think there might be five, were Pharisees because Paul has just said in his defense that these also believe in a resurrection. And that couldn't have been talked about the Sadducees. This point is uh, very important and is overlooked by virtually all um, Bible teachers in Protestant churches in America, as far as I know. So the Sadducees have kind of dropped out. The high priest is there. He's brought some Pharisees apparently with him. And the other people who are notably absent are the uh, Asian Judeans, the Judeans who live in the province of Asia, who had first stirred up the mob. They did not bother to come down. So the real accusers of Paul were not there in the Roman hearing, uh, which violated Roman law as well as the law of Moses. And so, as we uh, stopped last time, the Roman official in charge there has decided that uh, he has to hear from the Roman commander. And uh, that's where we are, he is uh, going to have Lysias, the chief uh, officer in Jerusalem, come down so that he can really straighten this out because, again, the wrong, the wrong accusers showed up. And so they're under a legal proceeding. Uh, Paul should have been turned loose due to failure of his accusers to appear uh, at the hearing. Uh, all right, so let's uh, read 23 uh, to the end of the chapter, please. Felix was rather well informed about the new way, and when he heard these words, he adjourned the trial, saying merely, I will decide the case when Lysias, the commander, arrives. He gave orders to the centurion that Paul was to be kept in custody, but allowed some freedom, 
and that no one was to prevent his friends from seeing to his wants. <clears throat> A few days later, Felix came with his Jewish wife, Drusilla, and sent for Paul and to hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked on about uprightness, continence, and the coming judgment, Felix became frightened. Before long, he exclaimed, That's enough for now. You can go. I'll send for you again when I find the time. At the same time, he hoped he would be offered a bribe by Paul, so he used to send for him frequently to converse with him. Two years passed, following with which Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. The latter wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jews, so he left Paul in prison. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so again, the a lawful hearing could not really be, be held or completed uh, due to the confusion or, and lack of witnesses. So Paul was kept under the charge of a centurion, uh, which roughly the equivalent of a captain uh, in the uh, U.S. Army today, actually kind of like a first sergeant also, a non-commissioned officer, but uh, having command over about a hundred men. Paul is again a Roman citizen, unconvicted, and so he he is not chained into a dungeon cell or anything like that. He's under more or less house arrest and uh, can receive visitors and so on and so forth. Now, Felix, I think we talked about last time, was a a uh, commoner, in fact, I think a freed slave, or his father at least was a slave, but he married well, and his brother rose to almost head the Roman civil service. And um, Drusilla here is, I think, his third wife. Um, and she is of the family of Herod the Great. And I don't know, I... I I can sometimes memorize this family tree, but I can't <laughs> retain it for longer than 30 minutes. It's really complicated. But the uh, the Herods were kind of like the movie stars of today. They uh, they mixed up spouses and uh, changed and had lots of marriages and things like that. And uh, I find it interesting that Paul decides to reason before them of righteousness and temperance and and the, the coming judgment because Felix and the family of Drusilla would have been really uneasy about those subjects and it, it tells us that Felix trembled about it uh, when Paul talked about these things it made them really nervous John the Immerser recall uh, when he spoke of such things before another member of Herod's family ended up uh, being beheaded over insulting the wife who was not really a lawful wife. And, uh, you know, the daughter danced and got to ask a favor, and the, and the favor was to take the head off John the Baptist. So Paul 
really knew that he was going into uh, um, dangerous ground here, but as we've seen before, he just charges straight on with no concern. And he's already been told by Jesus himself that he will get to Rome, so that may have made him even bolder than usual here. So <laughs> he, anyway, he, he did not make these uh, elite people feel comfortable and at ease, but at least they got a chance to listen to him, to learn of the truth of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, and uh, and so on. Now, Luke uses the term back up in uh, 22 of the way. He's used that before, uh, well, back in Acts 9, when Saul is uh, is converted on the way to Damascus. This is an allusion to the prophecies in, in the Old Testament scriptures about the way that in the last days of Israel, a way would be paid for the regathering of Israel and also for the invitation for all of the nations of the world from the four corners of the earth to assemble uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, it's talking, of course, about the new Jerusalem, the new perfect spiritual temple that's being built. But the way also alludes to the preparation work done by John the Immerser, and he was supposed to level out all the hills and make straight the way for the Messiah. And uh, this is, uh, I mention this just because none of our dispensational friends believe that John the Immerser had a highway construction business hidden away down there in the Negev <laughs> desert, uh, you know. Uh, and, of course, their their way of reading the Bible demands that they interpret everything literally, and they want to try to, or physically, literally is not a really good word. We read the Bible literally as literature, but they want to interpret things physically even when, uh, figure of speech is being used. And so the way, making the way straight for the Lord, mowing down the mountains and all of that, taking the curves out of the trail, John did that, but he did it in a spiritual way, not in a physical way using road construction equipment. So I just had to throw that in since the way is used again there in verse 22. Now jumping back down to uh, verse 26, uh, Part of the reason Paul is probably kept incarcerated is because at some point it was likely mentioned that he had accompanied, well, he had said it himself, that he had accompanied uh, a collection, alms for his countrymen. And uh, Felix may have thought that Paul had access to large sums of money. He apparently did have family that were fairly wealthy. His parents had to be fairly wealthy. His uh, family living in Jerusalem apparently were somewhat wealthy. So he had reason to hope for a good bribe. And he talked to him when he had the chance to try to uh, get, get Paul to cough up some money for his release. But two years uh, this went by and uh, Felix was replaced by Portius Festus, willing to show the Judeans a favor. Um, Felix left Paul under arrest, even though he should legally have let him go. 
All right, any comments, thoughts, or questions on these last verses of chapter 24? Well, the way was also um, an early term for the Christians, was it not? Oh, yes, that's exactly what he's using it at for here. He's talking about the, those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And th- he's, uh, Luke is describing them as the way, possibly even Felix knew them as the way at that time. So, yes, it is, it is what uh, the people who believed in Jesus were called the way. All right. There's another can, point there. Okay. In uh, verse 25, where it says he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Uh, it was the judgment about to come, and uh, and that is one of the reasons that Felix was afraid and answered Paul to go away, and uh, when he had a convenient time, he would um, call for him. And so, um, you know, Paul simply taught the same things that he had been teaching throughout his gospel message, that um, this Jewish hope was about to take place, and that uh, it also involved uh, those who had been outside of Israel's covenant, uh, offering them an invitation as well, but also um, focusing on the um, the judgment that was, you know, about to come that would uh, really uh, change the, you know, covenantal foundations of the world. Yes, thank you, William. Uh, you know, most people in most churches today would say that this is talking about great judgment at the end of all time, thousands of years in uh, Felix's future. But as we have tried to point out over and over again, there is an eminence about this that we've seen from the first day John the Immerser began preaching publicly. I mean, he was he says, this is about to happen. The, the, the root is already laid bare and the axe is already there. And who warned you vipers to flee the wrath that is about to come? So, yes, this is an imminent judgment, and uh, we do want to point that out because it's uh, consistently stated that way. And the tense is often changed in our English translations, but the literal, uh, both literal translations I'm looking at say the judgment that is about to be, whereas King James just said the judgment to come because they deliberately went in and altered the text to take the eminence out. All right. Okay, well, let's go ahead then and read uh, in chapter 25 down through 9. 1 through 9, please. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. There the Jewish chief priests and the leaders presented him with their case against Paul, requesting that he favor them rather than Paul, and urging Festus to send him to Jerusalem. Their plot was to kill him on the way. But Festus answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself would be returning there soon. Your leading men can come down with me, he said, and if this man is at fault, they can prosecute him there. After spending eight or ten days in Jerusalem, Festus went down to Caesarea. 
On the following day, he took his seat on the bench and ordered Paul to be brought in. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem surrounded him and leveled many serious charges against him, none of which they were able to prove. Paul's defense was, I have committed no crime either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against the emperor. But Festus, wishing to please the Jewish people, asked Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? All right, thank you. So, of course, it would make sense that the new procurator would go up to the capital of the country that he is ruling. So he goes up from the Caesarea, which is this magnificent Roman city that Herod the Great built uh, right on the coast, an artificial harbor that was a marvel of engineering uh, at at its time, a a wonder of the world, truly. Uh, And it was, of course, the seat of the Roman procurators, and the Herodian kings also had a palace there as well. But he does go up to Jerusalem to uh, to meet the leaders of the nation who he is going to have to work with during his tenure tenure there. Um, they made use of this visit to mention Paul to him, and they accused him. The high priest again, who is uh, almost certainly a Sadducee but then principal men of the Jews uh, also. And again, these are apparently the Pharisees, as we talked about last time. And we, we, we made a careful logical argument that the Pharisees must have initially, at Paul's first hearing in the Sanhedrin, accepted his view of the resurrection as their view of the resurrection. And they not only did not accuse him, but they... Uh, defended him and said there was absolutely nothing uh, for which he should be bound uh, in him. And they almost insisted on his release at the first hearing. But yet within just 12 days, these people who had been asking for Paul's release are now demanding his death. And we were able to show logically that they must have concluded that Paul's vision of resurrection was entirely different from their view of resurrection. And in all likelihood, this this is because they held a physical view of resurrection to go along with their physical view of a restored kingdom, a restored king, the restored throne of David, and so on. And... Paul, as we can read clearly in his own writings, and we'll see as we get further into these trials, held a spiritual view of resurrection. And it's it's not just what we commonly think of as, oh, we go to heaven to be with God when we die. Uh, that is really the result of resurrection, not the fact of resurrection. And we're going to be looking in detail at Paul's view of resurrection and, uh, and what was promised. Because he, he's always going to Old Testament prophets 
to teach his view of the resurrection, or he claims that his view of resurrection is nothing but what the prophets had promised to Israel. And so this is going to be really, really important. Uh, and, but, but here we see the result of that difference, that the, that the leaders of the Judean nation want Paul dead. They're begging this new Roman leader to get Paul out of his protected uh, custody down in Caesarea, get him on the road back up to Jerusalem so they could assassinate him. I mean, they're willing to risk insurrection or anything to get rid of Paul. They absolutely, passionately hate him with every fiber of their being. And interestingly, uh, last week Chuck pointed out the amazing similarities between the beliefs of the Pharisees then in the first century and our, our Christian Zionist dispensationalist friends today. But uh, there are some differences, but there are some uh, there is an alarming list of similarities about what they both believe. Um, I don't know whether Festus was on to him or not, but he was fairly strong uh, for a Roman official in insisting that Paul should stay down at Caesarea. And so he invites these accusers to go down with him and accuse, make the accusations against Paul there in a proper setting, in a formal hearing. Uh, after his visit uh, finished, uh, it says more than 10 days, he returned down to the coast to Caesarea, and the very next morning, probably early in the morning, he ordered Paul to be brought before him. And the, some of the Judeans had accepted the invitation and had come down as well. And they laid out many weighty charges. Again, we probably know the uh, the gist of them, but Luke clearly states they were not able to prove. Uh, desecrating the temple would have been the one that they would have wanted the most because they could have uh, demanded the death penalty immediately for that. But but again, they they didn't have the witnesses anymore. They they could not prove any of these charges. Um, we, we can see the nature of these charges again here in verse 8 when Paul responds that he, he has not sinned in anything against the law of the Judeans nor against the temple nor against Caesar. So uh, the, this certainly must summarize these weighty charges that they tried to lay against him. Now Festus, he I mean, I'm sure he has some sense of justice and rightness and probably knows that Paul is completely innocent. He probably was told that by Felix. But he also knows Paul's just one man and he's got to govern over this entire nation. So he looks for a way to curry favor with the Judean leadership. And so he asks this question. To Paul, are you willing to go back up to Jerusalem to be judged there about these things? So we can just open it up here. You can ask any question, but you know what? What would uh, Paul's uh, rightful response be to this question here? 
after what's just happened. How about no thank you? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they if they couldn't prove anything there in Festus's uh, hearing, why would they be able to prove anything up there? And if they had tried to assassinate Paul the last time he was in Jerusalem, you know, why wouldn't they try to assassinate him again when he went up to Jerusalem? So, yeah, no, thank you. That's what we'll read about next. But before we go on, any anything else anyone wants to comment on um, here in the first part of chapter 25? We'll start at verse 10. Okay, down through uh, 22, please. Paul answered, I stand before the imperial bench, that is where I must be tried. I have done the Jews no wrong, as you yourself realize. If I am guilty, if I have committed a crime deserving death, I do not seek to escape that penalty. But if there is nothing to the charges these men bring against me, no one has a right to hand me over to them. I appeal to the emperor. Thereupon Festus conferred with his council and finally declared, You have appealed to the emperor. To the emperor you shall go. A few days after, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid Festus a courtesy call. Since they were to spend several days there, Festus referred Paul's case to the king. There is a prisoner here, he said, whom Felix left behind in custody. While I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case against this man and demanded his condemnation. I replied that it was not the Roman practice to hand an accused man over before he had been confronted with his accusers and given a chance to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the matter. The very next day, I took my seat on the bench and ordered the man brought in. His accusers surrounded him, but they did not charge him with any of the crimes I expected. Instead, they differed with him over issues in their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, but who Paul claimed is alive. Not knowing how to decide the case, I asked whether the prisoner was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. Paul appealed to be kept here until there could be an imperial investigation of his case, so I issued orders that he be kept in custody until I could send him to the emperor. Agrippa said to Festus, I too should like to hear this man. Tomorrow you shall hear him, replied Festus. All right, thank you very much. So just as Chuck uh, surmised, uh, Paul says no thank you to this offer to go right back into the snake pit of Jerusalem. He he basically reminded the the court there that that they had absolutely no right uh, or a claim upon him, and he 
refuse to die uh, for no cause because he had done nothing worthy of death, and then he appeals to Caesar. And this probably was a huge relief to Festus because he didn't have to make the decision to either turn him over to the Judeans or to release him and earn the ire and wrath of the Judeans. Paul takes that problem out of his hands and appeals to Caesar and Festus is probably glad he confers with his council and then confirms that you shall go uh, to Caesar. And this doesn't necessarily mean a personal audience before the emperor, but it means basically an appeal to the supreme court of Rome in Rome, Caesar's direct representative. Uh, Now, he's got a problem, though, because, you know, a case going to a supreme court, is that usually a trivial case, like a misdemeanor or something? No way. No, no, it's... It's usually, it's usually some case that is really serious and really complicated. But is Paul's case really very complicated? Not at all. No, he's, he's an innocent man who under Judean law and Roman law should be released immediately. So how is this going to make Festus look back in Rome for this prisoner to arrive with an appeal and there's absolutely no case against him? <clears throat> It's going to be a little bit embarrassing. So, when Agrippa, another Herod, and his wife, Bernice, I think that's pronounced differently than we pronounce it now. Um, when When they show up, Fess says, aha, maybe this guy can help me write this case up to, to, to submit. Uh, along with Paul going up to uh, going up to Rome, so he de- describes the case there to uh, to Agrippa, and gives him a fairly accurate uh, summation of the events, uh, so to speak, and uh, the questionable nature of the charges that they laid against him, and uh, the religious questions that were really at the root of the disagreement rather than any violation of law. So he's going to ask uh, Agrippa here to help, uh, you know, write this up, write the case up. And Agrippa had apparently heard of Paul, and so he agrees to hear what Paul has to say, and then possibly help uh, in writing up a summation of the case. All right, anything uh, that I overlooked there of significance? Well, it it sounds like um, in debate terms, they had a squirrel case, and they had to make the most of it. Okay, I'm not familiar with that terminology. I'll take your word for it. A scroll case is a case um, built up over a little or nothing and uh, try and make the most of it. Okay. Yep, that sounds pretty much what he's stuck with here. Yeah. I think we're seeing something that that we don't get portrayed very often as you are, are teaching this so well. We're seeing the deterioration that's going on in the Roman system 
where they have this nepotism among the leaders and and where uh, where they have this corruption creeping in and they're taking bribes and trying to finagle and it seems like the Roman uh, the, the Roman Republic is coming apart in, in a little bit at a time in front of us. I, I know that's aside from the lesson that we're in, but it seems to be interesting that that uh, sh- sort of shows up in in the teaching of this chapter. Oh, yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, the Roman Republic had been started some what six hundred years before this, and uh, you know it is degenerating now into the empire. Uh, Star Wars, the Star Wars movies kind of uh, parallel this uh, uh, in in a a way. But, uh, you know, we definitely see that even with the trial of Jesus before Pilate. What the law says is set aside to please the masses. So the, the republic is degenerating into a democracy where minority rights are ignored. Uh, so, yes, we are definitely seeing that uh, here. There's another uh, point also, and that is Paul will get the opportunity to share the gospel um, because his vindication is going to involve him uh, telling basically the testimony of Christ so that they get an opportunity to hear what the real issues are, which will also... Uh, serve uh, to further clarify the distinction between Judaism and Christianity. So uh, it becomes a triumph for the kingdom of God in the um, in the Roman, you know, government and empire as well, so that they have a um, a better understanding of you know what these issues are. All right, very good. Thank you. Let's read the last few verses here of this chapter. And that'll be a good break point. We'll just shouldn't have to talk much about these verses. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience chamber in the company of military officers and prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. The governor began to speak. King Agrippa and all you who are here present with us, look at this man. The whole Jewish community, both here and in Jerusalem, has appealed to me about him, clamoring that he should live no more. But I did not find that he had done anything deserving of death, so when he appealed to his majesty the emperor, I determined to send him on. The trouble is, I have nothing definite to write about him to our sovereign. That is why I have brought him before all of you, and in particular before you, King Agrippa, that from this investigation I may have something to set down in his regard. It seems to me a senseless procedure to send on a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. (laughs) Thank you, yes. Yeah, he's got a little bit of a problem there. But, I mean, you know, this this city was built by Herod the Great, one of the greatest builders of all human history, and the entire town is magnificent. And this audience chamber, I'm sure, was spectacular. And don't you get the sense of pomp and 
and show uh, as all of these important people are, are in this place and Paul is brought there. And then even the way Festus describes it, he describes it much more, um, uh, well, he, he kind of embellishes it, I guess, a little bit here in the way he's describing it before all the people assembled in this audience chamber um, about instead of they want him, you know, they want Paul dead. They're crying that he should not live any longer. So it, I just get the sense of a spectacle uh, going on here. Uh, what a great place to turn Paul loose. <laughs> and that's what we'll look at next time. Uh, any other thoughts or comments here? Excellent lesson. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.